Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We speak with a number of people about the Iran, U.S., and now international crisis. Former Canadian Major General David Fraser, retired. He's a former NATO commander in Afghanistan. Dennis Horak, who was Canada's leading diplomat in Iran until 2012 on the firing of the deadly missile at the Ukraine airliner with 57 Canadians on board. For the United States perspective, Colonel Peter Mansour, former executive officer to General David Petraeus in Iraq during the uh, surge as well from Australia, Professor Paul Arbon from Flinders University in Sydney on the wildfires and the training of Australian emergency services that his organization undertakes. And uh, former airline captain, former Air Canada captain Raymond Hall on why he says Iran is still not being truthful about the shooting down of the Ukraine Airlines plane with 57 Canadians on board. Now, I want to talk about this past week and what lies ahead with our guest, Canadian Major General David Fraser, retired, former NATO commander in Afghanistan, president of Aegis 6 Corporation, and author of Operation Medusa, the furious battle that saved Afghanistan from the Taliban. We spoke with uh, General Fraser last weekend. General, thank you very much for taking the time to come back. Good to be with you. What do you uh, make of Iran admitting now to shooting down Ukraine Airlines Flight 752 after initially saying they hadn't done it. Now they're claiming there was jamming of uh, communication between uh, their units, which caused problems for them. How do you assess that? I, I think it's quite a revelation for the Tehran government to make any announcement of accountability. So uh, surprising, but at the same time, completely, they could not do anything else because... Once the Iranian, uh, the Ukrainians started to uh, put together the bits and pieces of that airplane, they would have seen very quickly that it was shot down by a missile. So the the Tehran government had no other choice but actually admit to it. General, I uh, I read a little earlier, and I put it on Twitter earlier today, and I'll be speaking with the captain in question in a while on the program. A multi-decade uh, Air Canada uh, retired captain, lawyer. Um, Raymond Hall sent me an email this morning about the uh, the Iranians' claim about the plane uh, uh, and it's being shot down. He, uh, he writes uh, the uh, the Iranian position. This is, the, is wrong. The, the normal practice is to file a flight plan, have that approved before departure, then program the route into the flight management system prior to departure, then have the autopilot fly the FMS route, including the standard instrument departure immediately after takeoff. The tracking will show that is exactly what happened. Deviations from that route would have been avoided at all costs. The fault here is with the trigger-happy personnel on the ground, not the crew, given their experience and professionalism. You think they were trigger-happy? Uh, there's nothing there that I would, I would disagree with. I mean, this is the fault of the Air Defense uh, Command. Uh, this is the fault of the Iranian military for doing so many different things that I just I cannot understand why they wouldn't have had put in procedures into place to prevent such an incident. Uh, this has got nothing to do with the flight crew. The United States general is said to have also targeted another COD's force commander, this one in Yemen. Obviously, they didn't kill him. Uh, that news has trickled out. What does it say to you that they uh, they launched simultaneous attacks, attempts to uh, kill COD's force leaders, the you know acknowledged and defined terrorist group, um, and we and we only just now found out about the second one. Again, that doesn't really surprise me. Uh, the COD force were certainly uh, within the the radar scope and the the targets of the United States because the COD force is the expeditionary arm of the Republican Guard that does all the, the terrorist uh, activities with proxies around the region. And this is certainly uh, an enemy of the international community and including the states. So the fact that they were going after this other commander doesn't surprise me. The fact that we did not know about it, and, um, the fact they would have missed him would have been completely normal. Uh, 
but the fact that we have found out about it, I think it's, it sends another message back to the Iranian government that the Americans have had enough of this. They've had enough of the cut force, and uh, they were pushing them back in the box. And by and large, to a certain degree, I think we actually have achieved pushing the Iranians back in the box temporarily. I found it interesting um, that the Iranians actually fired the missiles at the uh, military base in Iraq from inside their own country, from Iran. They didn't use a proxy to fire the missiles. What message were they sending? Uh, Simply, uh, Soleimani was the number two leader inside Iran. The Iranian people uh, needed to see the Iranian government uh, retaliating against the loss of this leader. The Iranian government had to send a very strong message back to the Americans that you cannot go and kill one of our leaders without retaliation. Therefore, having a proxy do it wouldn't have had the same impact as the Iranians do it themselves. So the Iranians made a big show of the fact that they fired these missiles back at the Americans uh, to send a strong message back to them. Uh, But at the same time, I think the second step step of that conversation was we didn't want this event to spiral out of control into a full-fledged you know war between iran and the united states hence by using iranian forces themselves the iranian leadership could actually control this in a much more uh manageable way than having one of the proxies do it so again not surprising that the iranians did this is it your sense that there's been a standing down by everyone now or could anything still happen at any time? I do assess that there has been a de-escalation of the situation. Uh, the Iranians, well, everybody, we, we got to a, a, a precipice uh, with the killing of Soleimani and had this other leader being killed. I mean, it certainly was, we were very close to a standoff. But the Iranians thought about it. They fired missiles at military bases using their own forces. Uh, there seems to have been, you know, on both sides, allegations of warning. Uh, either the American early warning system detected it. The Americans would have certainly seen the missiles move into position, get ready for launch, would have actually seen the plumes when they launched, would have been able to determine very quickly where the missiles were going to alert their own people. Uh, but the fact that the timing, the fact it was military, and the response by the Americans themselves, there certainly was a de-escalation of the situation. That de-escalation um, has uh, resulted in us essentially going back to the way things used to be, and that's uh, more sanctions on Iran, which is, seems to be uh, more acceptable on both parties in a, in a perverse sort of way. But the shooting down of this uh, aircraft was a tragic mistake, and again, uh, the fault of the Iranians for not having better control. General Fraser, what about uh, our forces, the Canadian Armed Forces personnel who are in the region, who were somewhere on that base, uh, but have been moved? What uh, What is the status? What do you expect the status will be? What is their role? And there is a beefing up, is there not, of Western militaries uh, in the region, particularly on the water? Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, you know, safety is paramount with uh, the Canadian authorities and principally as the chief of the defense staff when it talks about our men and women in uniform, and those uh, people who were unnecessary to the mission were moved out. The NATO training mission was put on hold, uh, but what this whole incident has shown is the the fragile nature of the NATO-U.S. relationship with the Iraqis themselves. And that relationship uh, had, was illustrated by the, the vote by the Iraqi parliament that Ask you know to tell the Americans to get out of the country. The fact that the mission is uh, training missions on hold. Some of the previous comments of previous NATO commanders uh, indicate that you know there has to be an awful lot of talking out going to, to take place whether or not that NATO training mission is going to carry on. And if it doesn't carry on, it doesn't bode well for the NATO because you know this was one of their major missions. What is your sense of the information that's been provided by President Trump and Secretary of State Pompeo about why they uh, they launched the uh, attack on on Soleimani and killed him and tried to kill another Quds general in, in Yemen, uh, with the President and the Secretary of State saying uh, we had four embassies that were targets. We can't tell you when, we can't tell you where exactly, but we know it was going on. Does that satisfy you, that response, that explanation? Not completely. I mean, 
Trump, whether you like or dislike him, the, the question I think all of us have with Trump is how much of what he says is actually true. Uh, I think they have indicated, and, and you know, the confidence really is from our own prime minister, from different intelligence sources. We don't need to know what the actual intelligence was, but, the, you know, the intelligence of where the missiles came from and, and who shot the missiles, all that part of the story is pretty clear. Why the Americans did this, uh, Trump and the Secretary of State have yet to kind of tell a, a compelling story. Uh, putting aside the politics, the the reasons why they went after Soleimani uh, or even this other guy, um, I, I doubt we'll ever actually find out the, the truth or something that most people are going to be willing to accept. General Fraser, is there anything that happened in Afghanistan as you commanded NATO forces there, any experiences in Afghanistan that we could carry forward to where we are now in 2020 and be of use as this situation between the United States and Iran develops? Well, one of the biggest things I would say is is coalition operations and having relationships with other nations are absolutely uh, critical and important. And I would say that the relationship that Canada has with Ukraine, the fact that we've we've trained together, we've 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 talked for many many years, whatnot. I think in situations like this tragedy, um, listening to the foreign affairs minister yesterday. Uh, that relationship that Canada and Ukraine has is actually going to provide the, con- you know, the, the conditions necessary that we can work together on trying to find answers to those families of the, of the people who were killed, what happened and why it happened. And so, you know, those relationships, international relationships that we have by working in other coalitions, whatnot, well, as important as they are for whatever we're doing at the time, and in Afghanistan, we were fighting global terrorism, really, with the, uh, Osama bin Laden and uh, to the Taliban and building nation, they actually pay off in second and third orders of effect, which uh, is in the future having those relationships and being part of the global community and not being isolationist uh, is actually beneficial. General Fraser, thank you for the time today and last weekend. Really appreciate speaking with you. All the very best, sir. Always a pleasure. Thank you. There's uh, General David Fraser, Major General, retired former NATO commander in Afghanistan, president of the Aegis Six Corporation, and the author of Operation Medusa, the furious battle that saved Afghanistan from the Taliban. Back to the, uh, the international issue, and we're talking about it in detail today. How does one of Canada's most experienced in the Middle East diplomats assess what has taken place particularly in this past week between Iran and the United States? And uh, the Iranian explanation, if you can call it that, about uh, the shooting down of uh, Ukraine Airlines Flight 752 with 57 Canadians losing their lives. We had the opportunity last weekend to speak with Ambassador Dennis Horak, former Canadian chief diplomat to Iran. I think it was 2012 when Iran, at least when uh, Canada and Iran stopped with their diplomatic uh, exchanges and engagements. And Ambassador Horak was also the Canadian ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Ambassador, thank you very much uh, for for taking the time. Let me start with this, please. What do you make of, uh, and, and what's your sense of Iran's claims concerning Ukraine Air Fly, Air Airlines Flight 752? First, they said they were not responsible. Now they say it was uh, accidental, and they're at least in part blaming the United States, saying American uh, military jammed communications between their military units. What do you make of this? Well, it's, it's, uh, I was actually surprised, to be perfectly honest, that they actually admitted it. Their default mode was to go to denial, denial, and that's what took us through the first three or four days. And, and then the, as the evidence started mounting, I think it became untenable to maintain that position. And they decided to perhaps get ahead of it and say, yes, we did it, but it's not our fault. And it you know, sort of reminds me of a talking to a 10-year-old who apologizes for something and immediately said, but it wasn't my fault. And that's kind of where we are, I think, with, with Iran. And it allows them to sort of take a narrative and try and have the U.S. Uh, bear the bear the bunt of the responsibility when, when really at the end of the day it's down to Iran. You know, they shot this down. I do believe it was unintentional. I don't think there was any intention for them to, to, to uh, shoot down a civilian airliner. I, it was... Uh, 
it was a mistake made within their structures, and that's something that they need to deal with and they need to figure out how to fix. And, and, and certainly it would be useful for us to have information about what happened. I don't think they'll be overly forthcoming with how their decision-making structures operate within their anti-aircraft system. But uh, it, it is a positive step that they've admitted it, so we don't have to stick to this he said, she said uh, kind of argument. We know the basic facts, and now it's time to get, try and get as much more as we can. And then to start working on compensation. Ambassador, if we can't believe what they say about this, what can we believe that comes from Tehran? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, we, we, they will they will look to try and spin this to make themselves be less less culpable. Um, but the facts really speak for themselves, and it depends on how other people want to interpret it. You know, they, you, know you can talk about okay, if the Americans hadn't killed Soleimani, none of this would have happened. Well, that, you know, all of this depends on where you want to start the clock. Do we want to start the clock at the killing of Soleimani, or do we want to start the clock earlier for the reasons why the U.S. went after Soleimani? And if we want to do that, then we can go further back, and on and on and on we go. So it's sort of an arbitrary place to start the clock on this, I think. What do you make of, and this is really, uh, it's major news, and it, it's made headlines, but it hasn't had the kind of international staying power over the last week or so that I expected it to. And that is the Tehran regime saying the nuclear weapons development agreement, that was still sort of partially in place, at least with uh, the European Union, mm-hmm. is off. Yeah, there's, there's, I think there's been a bit of a, excuse me, a, a difference between how they, they present it and what they're actually doing. My understanding is they've said that they they are not going to feel themselves bound by it. But on the other hand, as I understand it, they're still allowing inspectors in. So part of it, I think, is, is, is for... Uh, domestic consumption and some of it for international consumption, and then you have the reality. So it is, it, it's, I think we're in a bit of a state of flux. I think they will reevaluate uh, their cooperation with the program, again, as part of the, the effort to try and get the U.S. to, to uh, walk back from the uh, policy of maximum pressure, increased sanctions, and all of that. So we're back to kind of where we were before the, the recent uh, uptick in, in tensions. What is your sense about how cooperative the Iranians may be, or the Iranian government may be, with Canada? We have no diplomatic exchange. We don't have an embassy there. They don't have an embassy here. Uh, you know that better than most. Uh, but how cooperative do you think they may be with Canada, given now that we have this, uh, the respons- their responsibility for the shooting down of the, uh, the airliner with 50, 57 Canadian lives lost? Well, that, that, that's the, the big question. It remains to be seen. So far, I think we've seen grudging cooperation. You know, I understand now that they've issued three visas. We've asked for at least 10 or 12, according to what the Prime Minister said. I'm not sure what the issue is. If you want to issue visas, issue them all, not just three. But I have to say, that was exactly the experience we had on a regular basis with the Iranians when we needed people to come to the embassy to do various important things, just structurally, for the building. They would come in and we'd ask for five, and they'd turn around and say, we'll give you one, which one you want. And it allowed them to say, hey, listen, we've issued visas, but not to the degree that we need it. And certainly on the consular side, to help the families deal with with their loved ones and try to have them repatriated to Canada, it's important. It's a hum, human gesture, and I'm, and, and it, it's, you know, they're doing this grudgingly. And I think that will sort of we'll be able to judge in the next few days. And then again, likely with, like, like, likewise, sorry, with the uh, technical team going in from the Transportation Safety Board, how cooperative are they going to be with them? So, so far we've seen grudging cooperation. Hopefully now that they've admitted this, there, there's, you know, there's no more debate about what happened, no more he said, she said, so that, you know, perhaps it will, it will open up, although that's not their default mode. It's difficult for me to understand, and maybe for many others as well, why, given the fact of the crash of the plane, and they're clearly responsible, they've admitted it, for shooting it down, where there has to be any national muscle flexing or international muscle flexing, if we can call it that, by the Iranian regime by hedging how cooperative they're going to be? It makes no sense. You're absolutely right. Uh, you know, before when they were trying to dispute and they were perhaps planning on figuring out a way to, to cover this up, you know, maybe that made sense in their minds. But at this point, as they've admitted this now, there should be open cooperation, uh, full cooperation. Now, there's going to be areas where they're not going to, as I mentioned earlier, that they're not going to let us you know, really get good insight into, and that's how their anti-aircraft systems operate, and I, I get that sort of. But 
again, you, you, it, it doesn't make any sense. There's no logic to it apart from this is how the system works. It operates slowly. It operates grudgingly. They, they don't want to move too quickly because maybe they haven't thought things through. Who knows? Um, but it, it, it is illogical. You're absolutely right. What's your sense about how much difficulty the Iranian regime is in as far as internal opposition, national opposition, is concerned from the people of Iran. They faced some very serious uh, protests in November and December, so just weeks ago, which they put down with uh, really uh, brutality with shooting unarmed protesters. Are they finding themselves um, facing a, a, a rebellion, potentially, by the people of, of Iran? Yeah, and, and I should note they, they, they're back out on the streets today as well, protesting they are, yes. the regime liars and everything. So, yes, they're facing pressure, certainly. And it, it is partly as a result of the sanctions, and it's also incredible mismanagement by the Iranians, and that's been going on for decades. And so, as you rightly said, you know, they, 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 they crushed it. I mean, they arrested hundreds, killed upwards of estimates I've seen up to 1,500 people. It demonstrates how determined they are to maintain control. That being said, they're also able to mobilize, and they do have a large support, large group of supporters in Iran as well. They could they could mobilize millions if they needed to, because there are, there are a lot of people in the country that do support the regime. And after we saw it with, with the mourning period for Soleimani and his funeral, there were hundreds of thousands in the in the streets in various cities in Iran. Most of those genuine there genuinely. Uh, out of emotion and support for the regime. So it's a society that's very divided, and, and I don't think it's one that's teetering on the brink of collapse. But the regime is absolutely under uh, enormous pressure by this, but they've demonstrated time and again uh, the lengths to which they're willing to go to put down uh, any sort of rebellion or, or unrest. So it's, it's certainly a challenging place, but it's... Uh, it, it, we would be mistaken if we didn't recognize that there are millions who still support the regime as it is. One more question, uh, Ambassador Horak. Um, given that Iran has been meddling and, and really fomenting um, significant issues and problems in the region, are they now vulnerable? Uh, do other countries that have been targeted their, their targets, maybe Saudi Arabia particularly, does this now open the door or provide impetus for these other countries to take a run at Iran? No, I don't think so. I mean, as much as they'd like to, uh, I think most of them are afraid of Iran. And Iran is the, is the largest country in the region and has it has tremendous firepower, it has, uh, certainly in its missile batteries. And so Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, all of these countries that are, that, and Bahrain and others that are uh, frustrated and, and, and angry and concerned about Iran, they don't really have the capability to do much about it from a military perspective. So um, they rely on support of the U.S., they rely on support of allies to hopefully try and figure out ways to contain it and to deal with it on a piecemeal basis. But, you know, whether it's in Yemen or, you know, certainly within within Bahrain or within certain parts of Saudi Arabia, to try and deal with it on an ad hoc basis. But to deal with it collectively it requires the involvement of the U.S. in, in support of their containment efforts. And, you know, it is it is an ongoing challenge, and, and that's not going to change. Okay. Ambassador, thank you so much. Good talking to you again. Appreciate the You're time. Welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, Ambassador Dennis Horak, former Canadian chief diplomat to Iran and former Canadian ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Now, my guest is Colonel Peter Mansour, executive officer to General David Petraeus during the Iraq War, particularly the Iraq War surge of 2007. Uh, he's now a professor at Ohio State University, where he holds the Raymond E. Mason Chair, Junior Chair of Military History. And Colonel Mansour is the author of Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus, and the Remaking of the Iraq War. Colonel Mansour, thank you very much for taking the time. It's good to talk to you. I wish it was under different circumstances. Well, it's always a pleasure, Roy, even under these circumstances. What do you... Um, Let's let's start at the beginning. Was the justification for the U.S. strike to kill Soleimani always there, like twenty-four-seven? Um, well, you have to look at it in a in a political sense as well as a, a strictly security sense. So Soleimani was directly responsible for the deaths of upwards of six hundred American soldiers during the Iraq War. He supplied 
explosively formed penetrators, a very powerful roadside bomb to Shiite militias, which then used them uh, to kill and maim uh, thousands of American soldiers. Um, and so, but we never had a chance necessarily to take him out. He didn't enter Iraq at the time, to my knowledge. Also, the Bush administration decided that it wanted to try to come to an accommodation with Iraq, and so General Petraeus and Ambassador Ryan Crocker entered into negotiations with Iranian interlocutors trying to figure out a way that we could coexist in that region of the world. Fast forward to the war against ISIS, and Qasem Soleimani was uh, a quasi-ally since he was in charge of uh, training and directing the popular mobilization forces, the Shiite militias in Iraq that were fighting ISIS. There was no need to necessarily take him out then because he was fighting the same enemy we were. It's only in recent months when uh, the economic sanctions against Iran were biting so deep and Iran decided it was at war with the United States. Actually, it's been at war with the United States for 40 years, but decided to ramp up the pain level by attacking oil tankers in the Gulf and by attacking Saudi oil facilities, downing a U.S. drone, um, and more recently rocketing U.S. bases in Iraq, which eventually killed a U.S. contractor and wounded several uh, soldiers. So it's in that vein that the Trump administration decided that he was a valid target especially since uh, they had intelligence that he was planning to continue this campaign of violence against U.S. bases going forward. Colonel Mansour, when the President and the Secretary of State both say that uh, Soleimani was planning attacks on uh, President Said and Mr. Pompeo supported it for American embassies, they can't say where exactly or when exactly, um, is that a satisfactory response, particularly when you're dealing with your allies? Now, I imagine there's a lot of back-channel conversation and exchange of information going on, uh, but is that a satisfactory ex- public explanation? Well, you, they're walking a fine line between making public their reasons for targeting Suleimani and protecting the sources and methods by which they gathered the intelligence of what he was up to. I have no doubt that he was planning, he was directing Shiite militias to continue to attack U.S. forces in Iraq and around the region. Um, whether that meets the test of an imminent threat can be debated, uh, but there was no doubt that um, he was doing that. So the question is, you know, how imminent does that threat have to be if he's actually directing these militia groups to attack the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad and to attack U.S. bases? Um, you know, should we just give him a free pass as he waltzes into Baghdad International Airport and drives uh, down the highway to meet with uh, these groups to plan attacks on American forces? What does it say to you um, that Iran actually fired the missiles at the uh, military base in in, uh, in Iraq from its own territory, that it didn't use proxies that was actually a surprise to me. I thought it would um, try to have plausible deniability on the revenge it would take against uh, the Trump administration by using proxy forces to attack uh, U.S. forces in Iraq. I think that that still will happen in the future. But I think um, the Iranian regime believed it had to come out and uh, and make a statement, and that statement was that we're not deterred by the United States, we're not afraid of you, and we will launch weapons from our soil to hit your troops if necessary. It also says something that the missiles didn't kill anyone and caused very little damage. I think that shows that Iran was carefully calibrating the response because they they realized that if they go too far and the Trump administration ends up going to war with Iran, that um, they'll lose. I mean, it'll be a painful conflict for the United States and our allies, but it'll be devastating to Iran and perhaps the end of that regime. So I think they, they metered their, their retaliation in that sense. I don't want to make this uh, a bigger scenario than, uh, than it should be or could be, but I've wondered about any potential involvement, if it were to escalate, any potential involvement by Russia and or China, perhaps China financing Russia's involvement against U.S. forces. Do you, does this have still the possibility, did it ever have the possibility, 
of becoming uh, a major, and I'm not talking World War III here, as many people did, but a major global conflict. Yeah, I've seen the meme floating around on Reddit and other sites about World War III. I think there's 0% chance that uh, Putin would get Russia involved in a conventional conflict against the United States, even if we were attacking Iran, and same with China. They're, they just don't have enough at stake in, uh, in uh, their relationship with Iran to support them with overt military force. Um, so I, I don't think this was ever in danger of spiraling beyond a regional conflict. Um, if it if there were global ramifications, it would have been in the form of terrorism or cyber attacks. Um, and as we saw recently, there was um, the shoot down of a, a passenger jet, which had global ramifications, but occurred in the region. Colonel Mansour, please hold on. We're going to talk to you about that, uh, the shooting down of Ukraine, Ukraine Airlines Flight 752 with 57 Canadians on board. And the Iranians uh, saying that uh, the United States had uh, interfered with and essentially made communication between their units impossible and uh, are suggesting that that is why, the, uh, or at least is a reason why, the missile was fired at the, uh, at 752, Flight 752. The, I just want to alert you again, uh, some of you just joining us in the past few minutes, Raymond Hall, who will join us at the end of this hour, and a multi-decade Air Canada captain, and lawyer sent me an email this morning uh, challenging any assertion by the Iranians by writing the normal practice is to file a flight plan, have that approved before departure, then program the route into the flight management system, FMS, prior to departure, then have the autopilot fly the FMS route, including the standard instrument departure, or SID, immediately after takeoff. The tracking will show that this is exactly what happened. Deviations from that route would have been avoided at all costs. The fault here is with trigger-happy personnel on the ground, not the crew, given their experience and professionalism. Back to the issue of Iran, the United States, Canada, and the rest of the world. As the uh, crisis situation continues, it still is. I Let's consider it to be a crisis situation. It's leveled off a bit. But there's also um, the the crash, a heartbreaking crash of Ukraine Airlines Flight 752. 176 lives lost, 57 Canadians among them. Uh, Iran initially saying uh, they hadn't shot the uh, plane down and now saying, yes, it was one of their missiles, but uh, are suggesting that the United States had been blocking communications between Iranian units, and I'd like to ask our guest for his thoughts on that. Colonel Peter Mansour, a colonel in the United States Army, executive officer to General David Petraeus during the Iraq War, now a military history professor at Ohio State University. Colonel Mansour, how does that Iranian explanation or excuse about their shooting down the plane, uh, Ukraine Flight 752, sound to you? Well, first, my condolences to the uh, families in Canada affected by uh, the crisis. Um, you know, quite frankly, the Iranians uh, have all the makings of a gang that can't shoot straight. They um, they want to deflect their responsibility for killing these people onto um, other other nations, when in fact it's the commander on the scene who under, should have understood the a flight path of a plane, passenger plane taking off from Tehran International and ordering, uh, you know, the button to be pushed, which uh, sent uh, SA-15 missile up uh, to destroy the plane. I mean, it, it, you know, beyond that, why didn't they just um, uh, put a ground hold on all planes while they were conducting this uh, strike and for several hours afterwards to make sure that uh, there wasn't any interference of civilian aviation with military action. I, this is 100% on the Iranians, and they need to take res- full responsibility and not deflect blame on someone else. What are those missile systems designed to do? What are they for? Um, they are designed to destroy military aircraft. Military. They, they, um, I'm not sure the guidance system of the SA-15 might be radar, might be heat-seeking. I'm pretty sure it's radar-guided. 
but it, it will hone in on uh, on a, a large plane, a, you know, potentially a, a bomber. I guess that's what they thought. Uh, the the person at the uh, missile site thought, but uh, you know how they would beyond this, how they would think that the United States would have a non-stealth aircraft over Tehran at the same moment that these missiles were going off. It's mind-boggling, it's isn't it, Colonel? One, one plane. Yeah. One plane. Right. Mind-boggling. So um, I think it was a rogue, it might have been a, a, probably a rogue unit that got trigger-happy, and, um, you know, there needs to be consequences for those people who made the decision to uh, launch the missiles. Colonel Mansour, I have a lot of questions, uh, but there's one one thing I don't want to miss out on, and that is ask you uh, specifically, what is what is something that you really feel needs to be said about what's happened over the last 10 days? Uh, I, I might miss it with my question, so let me just put it to you that way. Well, I, I think we need to realize that Iran has been at war with the United States ever since 1979. They really have never... Um, owned up to the attack on the U.S. Embassy, the hostage-taking, their attacks on the United States around the region. Iran is a revolutionary regime. It wants to export that revolution, and we can't forget that fact. And people are treating that, some people uh, at any rate, are treating them as if they're just a normal uh, nation-state that obeys the laws of, uh, of, of uh, diplomacy and armed conflict, and it's not the case. Uh, they, um, you know, they have a plan to, to uh, gain hegemony across the Middle East. They're implementing that plan. They're uh, mostly succeeding at that. Um, but in the rush of some of the people in the United States to blame this administration for everything that happens in the world, we can't forget Iran's complicity in the violence that's racking the Middle East. Um, if there are further attacks including attacks within the United States, Canada, or other Western nations, attacks carried out by supporters of Iran, their proxies, what has to be, what has to be done? Uh, I think there will be retaliation by this administration. If anything can be tied definitively to Iran, if their fingerprints are on it, uh, there, will be, um, you know, there will be more military action taken. I, the administration had to reestablish a measure of deterrence. It didn't do anything when the oil tankers were attacked. It didn't do anything when the Saudi oil facility was struck. It didn't do anything when the U.S. drone was was taken down. It finally uh, took action once a a U.S. citizen was killed and our embassy was attacked. Uh, But any further loss of life, uh, and especially in Donald Trump's mind, American life, is going to lead this administration to, to hit back again and even harder next time. So right. uh, if I were Iran, I would consider carefully uh, their next steps. Colonel Mansour, always appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Roy. Have a great weekend. And you. Colonel Peter Mansour, military history professor at Ohio State University, former um, executive officer to General David Petraeus during the surge in Iraq. A desire to bring the truth to the forefront and a refusal to back down. The Roy Green Show continues. We've still got thousands of kilometres of fire edge uh, that needs to be consolidated and tied up over the coming week. Uh, We really want to take advantage of the more mild conditions uh, that are before us over these next five to seven days uh, to see if we can get as much consolidated and as much contained as we can before we see any return to warmer uh, conditions. The southerly that came through uh, has provided relief in terms of uh, milder weather conditions and uh, the best advice we have at this stage are these milder conditions are going to last uh, for the foreseeable week. So it gives a great reprieve for our wonderful firefighters and emergency services personnel to really double down. Ooh,
We're back on the Chorus Radio Network, and uh, the first voice you heard was that of Shane Fitzsimmons, the Commissioner of New South Wales Fire Services, and the uh, second voice was that of the Premier of New South Wales, where much of the wildfire uh, activity, the uh, tragic wildfires in Australia, uh, is taking place in some different parts of the country. Uh, so how does uh, Australia coordinate its emergency services and deal with the new numbers of people? who are displaced by the fires. As well, there's the massive death of wildlife in Australia and the possible biohealth hazards uh, that these deaths may pose. Joining us on the program is Professor Paul Arben from Flinders University in uh, Sydney. He's the head of the Torrens Resilience Institute. Uh, Professor Arben was also the president of the World Association for Disaster and Emergency Medicine. And as I understand it, the Institute... Uh, among other things, coordinates the readiness of emergency services across Australia. Professor Arben, thank you very much. Monday morning for you. And uh, how how do things look today and for the week ahead as far as the weather is concerned and any ability to impede the progress of the wildfires? Uh, good morning, Roy. Um, the disasters that strike Australia actually are a bit... Um, are very much related to the regions because Australia is quite a large um, country and uh, and so it's the southeastern corner, if you like, of the country that tends to suffer most from uh, these sorts of wildfires and it's those states, it's New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania and South Australia that um, usually face fires during this time of year but are, uh, are really struggling at the moment. Um, and so our issues currently are coordinating that and trying to get on top of uh, a fire season that started uh, really very early in the year and is uh, pretty extreme this time. Uh, you're in New South Wales in Sydney. Uh, is, is, are any major population areas in specific danger or are they mostly um, protected from, from the wildfires? Well, uh, first, Roy, I'll just... Um, uh, clarify that we're in uh, Adelaide, which is in... Oh, Canada. I'm sorry. I, yeah. uh, that's okay. Um, but, uh, but again, one of the states that, that has these sorts of issues. You know, um, the, the real threat, um, apart from the dreadful, you know, catastrophic impact that we've seen on um, loss of uh, uh, pastoral lands and uh, productivity and people's homes, and, of course, we've lost 23... Uh, lives uh, to date in about eight weeks of the of the fire season. We've got another two uh, months or so to go. But having said that, um, the real uh, concern, or another concern, I'll put it that way, um, is uh, the impact on people's health. Um, there are two factors in that. First, something we've seen before, which is the extreme heat that usually accompanies these sorts of fire events. Um, you know, we have these fires during heat waves, and uh, we do know that those heat wave conditions in communities that are not affected by fire, uh, as well as those that are, can increase the daily death rate by about 10 times. So we see lots of people that are older have more than one chronic disease, uh, perhaps have a mental health problem. Um, suffering um, a severe health impact as a result of the, of the heat. And I'll just say the second thing that is a bit of a, a new and uh, uh, less understood phenomenon is the impact of smoke. Uh, and in places like Sydney, we've, uh, we've had dreadful uh, smoky conditions for weeks on end. And we really don't have much idea what the background effect of that will be on people that have asthma or chronic airways disease and usually live with that but are now living in an environment that is smoky every day. So when you take the wildfires of this season and you compare what Australia has encountered in previous years, this is significantly worse than anything that has happened in recent memory. It certainly seems to be uh, significantly worse than anything that we've seen in recorded history um, <clears throat> in the documented records. Um, there may have been these sorts of uh, very large fires in the in the ancient past of, of the country, um, 
But, um, you know, most of us would argue that extreme weather events, including these kinds of wildfires, are more frequent now. Um, we're seeing higher temperatures year on year. Um, we're seeing uh, more people affected by fires. Um, and we're seeing more flooding, you know, all of those sorts of things that disrupt people's lives and impact on the services they need uh, uh, certainly seem to be happening more often. Mm-hmm. I've been very impressed uh, by what I've read and learned about what you do at the Torrens Resilience Institute. And uh, the more I read, the more I think it would be very helpful to this country if we had something similar. Um, I won't ask you to comment on that, but I, I know that I would imagine Canadian officials are looking at all ways to improve communications and uh, and cooperation, uh, cooperative efforts between emergency services. Tell us, please, what is it that you do at the Institute? What role does the Institute play in preparing uh, communities and emergency services organizations to fight the fires? There's a range of activities. The fundamental idea, um, which uh, you see globally, uh, falls out of um, a number of um, number of issues in disaster and emergency management. Uh, certainly what we see these days in the emergency management scene is the impact of complexity and interconnectedness, interdependence in uh, communities and indeed uh, between regions and across across the globe. You know, we depend on other places for the services that we need. Um, we... Um, are less um, independent when it comes to, uh, you know, basic uh, infrastructure. You know, we need water, we need uh, relatively consistent power supply, we need communications, we need food, um, you know, food supply and so on. And in many communities you're seeing uh, more fragility in terms of those sorts of systems. So um, when an event occurs, it, it really doesn't matter too much whether it's a cyclone or a fire or a... Uh, an earthquake or whatever it might be, what does matter is the ways in which that event damages the things that keep us safe and keep us healthy. Uh, And so, you know, in in emergency management across the globe, people are now thinking about how do you build that front-end resilience uh, so that when there is an impact, the damage is perhaps lessened, uh, but also the recovery might be a bit faster. How do you build more resilient communities, if you like? Yeah. Professor Arbon, please hold on. We'll uh, take a quick break. Uh, Professor Arbon, I read, a, as I mentioned before the break, a post from Flinders University from 2009, and it was headlined, Top Disaster Medicine Role for Flinders Dean, which would be you, which points to population growth along coastlines and the urban poor moving to larger cities without adequate infrastructure and how these realities would cause the impact of natural disasters to grow rather than subside. I'm, I'm interested to know how emergency services in Australia are deployed to battle the wildfires and how Australia is dealing with the numbers of people displaced by the wildfires. And I, I, I know the Institute has been clearly involved in, uh, in coordinating these, uh, these emergency responses. Well, Roy, we um, <clears throat> certainly do a lot of work in the background of research and development and um, in uh, the production of the practical kind of guidelines and uh, uh, and scorecards and guidance that underpins how businesses and uh, communities and emergency service organisations do their business. And so we're trying to um, bring better evidence and uh, and learn lessons and apply them in that in that whole context. So to that extent, we're helping to coordinate. Um, we don't do the front end operational coordination of. Um, emergency responses because that is a state responsibility and you've heard from some of the people that, that do that uh, in your um, in your excerpts today um, but um, it's a, it's a whole range of things you know we're doing some work with ASEAN at the moment about coordinating um, some uh, particular emergency events uh, ASEAN being the Asia Pacific Regional Economic Forum uh, but also at a much lower level where um, running some work at the moment looking at the impact of firefighting operations on uh, stored uh, domestic water supply uh, on rainwater uh, tanks in Australia because as you do, as you drop fire retardant, as smoke and ash uh, covers communities, the next rain event moves some of that into your water supply. So that's a much more practical kind of on the ground 
project that will make a difference to policy um, at the jurisdictional level. So a whole range of things, um, and that changes every day depending on uh, you know what kind of issues we see emerging. These new fires, a whole lot of new issues emerging, as you'd, you'd understand. What can Canada learn from the experience of the Australian wildfires? We certainly have massive fires in this country, and uh, and and they uh, they occupy a great deal of time and cover a great deal of territory. What what can we learn from your experience in Australia this year? Well, I don't know enough about um, the public safety agencies' work in your country, but there are some general things I'd say. Um, all, all of these sorts of agencies are now um, having to emphasise the need for communities, you know, for people themselves to share the responsibility for their safety um, in a much more practical way. Uh, we see communities moving into um, environments where they are at greater risk. Um, we need people to understand the risks they face to do the work they need to do to prepare their properties for potentially, in this case, fire. Um, we need communities to self-organise um, and to support one another. You know, there will not be enough uh, firefighters and enough fire trucks uh, for every street and uh, uh, and every house. So, uh, so the issue of shared responsibility is really important. The other one that um, I just highlight is that what we are discovering, because um, communities are becoming more dependent on uh, sophisticated services, is that things break that we don't expect. Um, we talk about um, uh, the complex cascading consequences, if you like, of these sorts of events, the things that go wrong that you didn't think the fire would do. And often that's, you know, for example, we've seen... Um, patient record systems, which are now um, computerised, uh, go down for weeks on end because power has failed um, and generated power only lasts so long. Um, you know, those kinds of effects back in businesses that the emergency services are not dealing with and the fire, and they're fighting the fire, uh, but that other people need to think about. Mm -hmm. So that complexity would be the, the second issue, I think. Okay. Uh, a story that, of course, traveled around the world uh, and, and has people uh, deeply disturbed is the, is the news that hundreds of millions of um, wildlife have lost their lives, some estimates up to a billion, and that's terrible. Um, but I'm also curious about whether there that this in perhaps creates any biohazards for Australia and the people of Australia. I think the um, principal biohazard is probably related to uh, exposure to smoke. Um, and uh, and as I said earlier, that's something we don't understand well enough. The uh, concern, um, uh, at least one of the concerns with the vast number of uh, animals that seem to have been affected, is uh, the impact of that on the ecology um, of of that particular region. Now, um, we don't necessarily understand well enough yet uh, whether there are any species that are um, that were threatened in any case uh, before the fires came through, um, or, or not in some of these regions. Um, and uh, uh, we don't understand what the ecology will look like when you run a fire of that magnitude through. In this case, we've burnt 11 million hectares in Australia. If you run fire through that much area, what effect that might have on the regional ecology mm -hmm. uh, as it regrows and redevelops. Um, so uh, this is new territory, I think, for us. One more question for you, Professor Arbon. Um, how long is this fire season expected to last? And are you getting any at least measurable... Okay, I know you've had a little bit of cooler weather, but are you getting measurable relief? We, we're getting cooler weather, which is a good thing, particularly for those populations I've talked about. It is, um, you know, heat is the biggest disaster event in Australia and the hidden one. So, so that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, it doesn't necessarily affect the relative dryness and uh, uh, potential for fire across the country. 
and we've not seen enough rainfall. Part of this event, of course, particularly for the east coast of Australia, falls out of the fact that we've had a, um, a very long period of drought down the eastern seaboard, and so the country was very dry to start with, right. drier than it might usually have been. Right. But we've had some rain, and it's not uh, it's not enough to slow fires down. Well, um, and so uh, not that helpful. We wish you uh, all the very best, and uh, and that's all we can do. Is we know we are doing tremendous work at uh, at the institute, and uh, emergency personnel are doing what they can. We're glad we have Canadians on the ground working with you, and uh, again, all the very best, Professor. Thank you for the time today. Thank you, Roy. Very much appreciate it. Paul Arbon, Professor Paul Arbon from Flinders University. They're also working with the Canadian government, the Institute is, uh, to combat the use of biological weapons. Uh, we're going to uh, air a f- much longer segment tomorrow with my next guest, Raymond Hall, former Air Canada captain and lawyer. But I wanted to speak with uh, Captain Hall today because he sent me an email uh, earlier this morning, and here it is. The General Staff of the Armed Forces, this is from the Washington Post, said in a statement Saturday that Ukraine International Airlines Flight 752 was shot down, quote, unintentionally, unquote, after departing from Iman Khomeini International Airport in Tehran. The passenger plane carrying 176 people turned, quote, toward a sensitive military base, end quote, belonging to Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which mistook the airliner for a hostile aircraft, the statement carried by state television said. They're now also saying that uh, the Americans probably disrupted their uh, military communications. But based on what you saw and the Iranian explanation, Raymond, uh, you're calling them out on that. I am indeed, Roy. Uh, the, um, the issue here is uh, that, that there is obviously a miscommunication between the military personnel and the air traffic control people, uh, that uh, the military per- personnel who are in charge of that installation were unaware uh, or at least not informed or certainly ignorant, if I may use that word, of the fact that uh, the flight profile of that departing aircraft was directly on the path that was flight planned through air traffic control. And it was a standard departure. It's called a standard instrument departure, SID, SID, that was followed, that was given to five prior aircraft during that same night after midnight. And the aircraft was climbing out on a normal climb uh, now, yes, it did point directly towards that military installation. The turn that it made, uh, about a 20-degree turn after it passed the outbound point on the standard in- instrument departure, did point it directly at that military installation, but it was still climbing from 5,000 to 8,000 feet above sea level, sea level at that time, uh, probably with its uh, floodlights on, and uh, the military people should have, without doubt, uh, known that that aircraft was departing from the uh, international airport in Tehran, and they should have held their uh, fire. They should have waited to see if there was any uh, reason for uh, or any provocation by that type of aircraft. I just want to read from your from your email. The, the normal practice is to file a flight plan, have that approved before departure, then program the route into the flight management system, FMS, prior to departure, then have the autopilot fly the FMS route, including the standard instrument departure, which you just mentioned, SID, immediately after takeoff. The tracking will show that's exactly what happened. Deviations from that route would have been uh, avoided at all costs. The fault here is with trigger-happy personnel on the ground, not the crew, given their experience and professionalism. And uh, from what I gather from our communications, which we, you and I have been communicating all day by email, that right turn by that plane may very well have been uh, a reaction by the crew to being sh- being being hit. Well, there's two right turns, Roy. There was a very gentle right turn that's part of the SID departure. Uh, that's about a 20-degree turn. The, the aircraft is generally pointed westbound after takeoff, uh, and so it's going to go northbound uh, to follow its flight plan route. That's about a 15- to 20-degree turn in uh, after it pa- passes about five miles away from the airport over the uh, uh, waypoint there with the SID departure. And then uh, it, it tra- would travel uh, completely northbound from, from that point on for some length of time. Now, there was a turn uh, immediately after that point uh, in the uh, actual track of the aircraft, but that turn occurred 
Uh, that's like a 180-degree turn back towards the airport. That turn occurred after the loss of electronic transmissions from the aircraft, after the transponder that uh, signals the altitude and, and speed of the aircraft and location of the aircraft, after that transponder signal was lost. Now, the reason that the transponder signal was lost was undoubtedly because of the impact of the missile on the aircraft. So one way or another, either the pilots were in control of the aircraft and tried to uh, attempt to get it back to the airport, or it was out of control, and based on the uh, pictures that we've seen of the damage to the aircraft as a result of the missile, uh, my guess is it's probably out of control. Okay. The, dam- the left side of the aircraft was severely damaged, and, and as a result, uh, the uh, aircraft actually started into a descending right turn immediately. Raymond, we'll, uh, have to, we'll have to pick up this conversation tomorrow. Thank you for joining us today, explaining what you have. There's no justification for what took place clearly, and I look forward to speaking with you more tomorrow. Indeed, Roy. Thank you. Thank you. Raymond Hall, former Air Canada captain. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.